You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. Here's what uh, the Apostle Paul says. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. I want to pray, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to be together this morning. Uh, we recognize in, in many parts of the world, believers don't have the uh, privilege that we have gathered together as a body of believers in all of our shortcomings and all of our, of our inadequacies and... Uh, in all of the glory of the stories of transformation that you, Father, have done among us. We, we have that privilege. And so thank you for that. Um, God, we ask that you would come and speak to us. That you would speak a word to us through your word. Lord, we recognize that um, you are constantly speaking to us. So we ask God that you would give us the heart to hear. Uh, your word to us, whether that be a, a word of encouragement this morning or a word of comfort or a word of healing or a word of rebuke even. Uh, that's a hard word in our culture today, but you might even speak a word of correction or rebuke and Lord, give us the hearts to hear that. Um, help us to be transformed. Help us to, to catch a vision of uh, Jesus in all of his perfection at the cross. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. We trust that you'll do the work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Man, it's good to be back with you guys. And I, I am uh, I, I really am stoked to be back in Philippians. It is one of my, as old Joe said earlier, I'm foolish, but either way. Um, you know, Philippians is definitely one of my favorite uh, books in the Bible. Um, I love all of God's Word, but Philippians over the years has, has just given me um, much uh, help in, in different seasons. And uh, as we read uh, this portion, as we read this, this portion of the text this morning, as I stated this week, I, I kept landing on this question that kept rolling through my, my mind, and, and it was this question, uh, who, who do you think of uh, when you think of a godly man? Um, who, who, who is that man for you, that, that person, man or woman? I'm going to use the, the 
probably the, the more male sounding uh, pronouns as much as I can, uh, just because that the text is about a man. So, um, but man or woman. So make that caveat up front, and then you can just bear with it. Who do you think of when you think of a godly man or a godly godly woman? Who, who is that that jumps up in your in your uh, memory? Um, who, who affected you deeply because of their godly character, their godly example, their godly model. Uh, the reality is this, godly men and women are pretty hard to find. Um, it's really no secret. We live in a world that idolizes immature men who like to pretend to be men. Um, like to call those pretend men little boys with mustaches. They like to play games with women, typically, and their friends. Uh, like to medicate their insecurities and their pain with all of their addictions. That might sound harsh. Um, according to the world around us, a real man, honestly, is, is kind of whatever you want him to be, right? He's either gentle and feminine, or he's rough and burly, or he's athletic and funny, he's successful and wealthy, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, pretty soon, you got men that are just looking into a whole bunch of mirrors, and you're just trying to figure out which reflection is actually you based on what the world is telling you, right? Uh, and again, th- this it runs true for women as well. I'm certain of that. I know that. Raised six daughters and got a beautiful wife. and So I know this is true across the genders. Uh, the other reality is we critique the world. We might as well critique the church too while we're at it because the church hasn't done a very good job of this uh, over the years either. And when I say the church, I'm speaking of the American church because I don't really have any... Uh, experience anywhere else because I'm American and I live in America and I've never been overseas yet. So um, my experience with the American church in terms of producing godly men, um, and again, I'm taking a pretty negative approach um, on purpose. There's a lot of good things that could be said. Um, But over the ages, church kind of done its best really to emasculate men, turn men into nothing more than yes men. Men who never say a harsh word, never pick fights, only sing songs that are soft, emotional, and higher pitched than most men can even sing in the first place. Um, yet throughout Scripture, you know, as you study the Scriptures, um, find, you find stories of men who are really godly men, um, despite the fact that they were sinful and had shortcomings too. So I was thinking about some of those pictures I mean, I'm a man, right? So I love some of the stories of men in the scriptures. Uh, when you got David kills a giant with his own sword, that's pretty B.A. I don't know how else you even say that, okay? I don't. I don't know how else you say that. It's just, he's a man. He's a dude. I've never killed a giant with his own sword. So if I was in a room with David, I would probably feel a little bit insecure, <laughs> to be really honest with you. He kills a giant with his own sword, but then David also writes over half the praise and worship songs in the Bible. Many of those, if you think about them, if you read them, many of those I think are far heavier than most of us want to admit. I, I, would, I would submit to you and have often, you guys have heard it, I, I believe some of those psalms are very heavy metal, in my opinion. Um, when you read Psalm 3 and you, you look at the fact that God is basically a curb-stomping God, um, break the teeth of the wicked God, that doesn't sound like a nice, frilly little song that we sing on Sunday mornings. That sounds like a heavy metal song to me. So, um, you can argue that all day, it's just an opinion, but that's David. Noah, what did Noah do? Well, Noah spent 40 years building a big wooden boat. I mean, dude worked with 
power tools, kind of, you know, I don't know. I mean, dude worked with his hands. He had tools in his hands. He, he's building a big boat. He's also doing that despite the fact that all of the culture around him is like, you're an idiot. It rained in 40 years. What is wrong with you? I mean, the dude on his own stands by himself, basically, with his small family and goes against the grain of culture in, in a crazy show of courage. That's, that's a man, I think. Noah's a man. Wasn't wasting his life playing video games, I'm sure. Ouch. I know. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> I know. It hurts. Video games aren't bad. Just don't waste your life playing them. Daniel, what did Daniel do? Daniel prayed in public, even though it was technically illegal, right? Prayed in public, though it was technically illegal. And then what happened? Spent the night in the lion's den um, for his so-called crime. Lots of deep prayers get prayed that night in the den of lions to eat you like cereal. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are some of my favorite... Um, men in the Bible, and I have friends of mine who have said it this way, and I think I have the freedom to say it this way, too. Um, one, one of my friends, uh, he says, man, this is, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and one bad Negro. That's the way he says it. Um, and his point is, these guys are men. Um, these guys are men that you wouldn't want to cross. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, these guys, they don't bow down to the idol. Um, they only bow to their God. Uh, to the extent that they were getting thrown into a furnace because they didn't buy into the cultural's idea of idol worship. Right? Those are real men. Think about the disciples. They planted churches. They died horrible deaths for the sake of the gospel. The apostle Paul was beheaded for preaching the gospel. The apostle John was boiled in oil and banished to an island alone to the end of his life. Let's not forget Jesus. Jesus, who was not the fair-skinned, blue-eyed, soft, frilly little Jesus with kids on his lap that the American church oftentimes paints him out to be. Um, he was a rugged carpenter. Oftentimes said very harsh things to his opponents and said harsh things to the people he was discipling. That's the Jesus that we oftentimes reject. because We don't like harsh things. We like soft things. This is the Jesus who also carried his own cross to his execution and then told us as his disciples, you ought to pick up your cross if you're going to be my disciple. That was the mark of a disciple. Was Would you carry a cross and would you suffer for the sake of Christ? Um, so, the scriptures are full of examples of what really godly men look like, right? It's exactly what this passage in front of us describes. Describes... Epaphroditus. Um, I think Paul thinks he's a really godly man. Um, but I think uh, before we get into like into the weeds, uh, because I think it's good for us to ask the question, what are the things that Paul says about Epaphroditus? But before we get into the weeds on that and into the details, I think it's really important for us to think about this letter to the Philippian church and for us to think about the Philippian church um, biblically for a moment. Because what's easy for us is to kind of import um, our cultural experience, our cultural longings, our cultural desires into the text. Um, that's called eisegesis, where you 
read your thoughts into the text rather than exegesis, which to, is to expose the meaning of the text. So the job of, of biblical study for us as disciples, and my job as a preacher is to expose the meaning of the text and then bring that to bear on our lives. That's application at the end, okay? So I think for us to be careful that we're not just reading our own little cultural idiosyncrasies into the text, good for us to start with what is the book of Philippians and who is this Philippian church we're talking about. So a little history lesson for us, a little biblical lesson. Um, Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the Philippian church, he actually planted the Philippian church 12 years earlier, okay? And he did it with a wealthy Asian woman, an ex-demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman prison guard as his first believers, his core team. So when you think about putting a core team together to plant a church, those aren't the people you typically choose. They're not. Um, you go back to the old youth ministry model. Youth ministry model is find yourself a star quarterback because he's got lots of influence with the kids on the campus and get him to follow Jesus and then send him after all his friends. That's the old youth ministry model. Lots of churches still roll with it. It's unbiblical. It's just, it, that, that's an American importation of popularity. And it's dressed up and it looks nice and it gets lots of people in a room but I can tell you, lots of people in a room don't prove that your religion is right because Jesus had 12 and they left him on the day that he died. So, so the Apostle Paul plants this church in Philippi 12 years ago with those three people. You can see this in Acts 16, 11 through 40, just to check and make sure that what I'm telling you is true, right? Now, 12 years later, uh, the Apostle Paul is now writing this letter to them. Why is he writing the letter? It's a good question for us to ask when you're doing biblical interpretation to make sure that you don't import your cultural idiosyncrasies into the text and you actually let the text, God's word, govern your life, right? You actually become submitted to God's word, not submitting God's word to your word. So, so why, why is he writing a letter? He's writing a letter because there are three major issues. Now, I kind of lumped them together, different scholars. I'm not a scholar, but other scholars and authors, guys who are much smarter than me, actually have letters after their last names, which I don't, um, appear to uh, group things together um, roughly uh, this way. Three major issues in the church, and then three antidotes to those, to those issues. You'll see this on the screen in front of you here in just a minute. In this letter, he confronts these three issues, self-centeredness and pride, one Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Not pulling out thin air. The words are actually there. Uh, second category he confronts is category of complaining and arguing, Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Again, so you can go to the text and find it. And then the last thing he confronts uh, is disagreements and division in Philippians 4, 2 through 3, okay? So those are the three core issues he's wanting to address head on from the get-go. And then what Paul does is he gives remedies. So you'll see this on the next screen. He gives uh, three remedies to these major issues. And, and the first remedy is he instructs the Philippians to put on the mind of Christ. Put on the mind of Christ instead of being self-centered and prideful. You'll see that in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Okay, that's the remedy. Second remedy, he tells them to work out their salvation in Christ instead of complaining and arguing. So you got a problem with complaining and arguing? Okay, if that's you, which most of us ought to be raising our hands deep down inside because we complain and we argue. i got to wear masks, the Democrats this, the Republicans that, yada, yada, yada. My heart complains all day long. 
So if I got an issue with complaining and arguing, what ought I to do? According to the Apostle Paul, um, work out your own salvation in Christ. That's an interesting, interesting picture, right? That's Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Finally, um, if you have an issue uh, with disagreements and division, you just love to disagree with everybody around you, right? Constantly walking in device, divisiveness, constantly in broken relationships. It's always you versus them and them versus you. If that's, if that's kind of you, then what, is, what does Paul say to you? He says, stand firm in the joy of Christ. Stand firm in the joy of Christ. Um, Chapter 4, verses 1, verses 4 through 7. So, those are the issues, those are the remedies. That's the core theme Paul's trying to say to the Philippian church. That's some of the history of the Philippian church. Now that we've got that in our minds, what are we doing? We're interpreting what the Bible says, right? One of my um, deep loves and passions is to teach you guys to do what I do. Um, you don't need me, but you do, right? So every church needs a preacher. That's biblical. Um, people who call themselves churches but don't have preachers in their churches, they wipe out half the Bible. So you do need preachers. It's a gift that God gave to the church. When you say we don't need a preacher in our church and we can just do our own thing and have conversations, fine by me, do your thing, but you're not listening to half the Bible at least because preachers wrote these books and preachers are in the list of gifts. So that's like telling the hand, hey, I don't need you anymore. Thank you very much. Good luck cleaning your toilet with no hands, right? So, now we have some background on the text, and we have some implications of the text. How do you sum this up? Here's where I think you sum this up. So, I've kind of, we've, we've done this, right, all the way out and around. We're going to come back down into one fine place. If you could find one verse in the book of Philippians that would summarize best what the core theme of all Philippians is about. Here's what most people would tell you. It's all about joy. No, it's not all about joy. Joy is mentioned more times in Philippians than any other book. Yes, that doesn't mean it's all about joy. What it means is that Paul is full of joy and he uses the word joy a lot. But that is not the main thrust of the book based on the issues and also based on the remedies to the issues. Okay? Again, it is a book that is about joy, but it's not the main thrust, not the main purpose of the book. It was written for a reason. You feel the joy, despite the circumstances in Paul, despite the fact that he's in prison. You feel the joy. You hear him talking about doing things with joy, yes, but it's not the main purpose of the book. Here's the main purpose of the book. I would submit to you that it's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. You'll see it on the next slide. And my um, paraphrase taken from another author who does better with Greek than I do because I don't know how to read Greek yet. And Joe Nelson does, old man Joe, that's why he's wiser than me and older than me too. Um, Philippians 1.27, um, here would be the central command to the book of Philippians and the way, that, the way that I have it is Paul is calling the Philippians to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven. Now the as citizens of heaven is the kind of additional part from the Greek that I think you can find if you put different translations next to each other. The idea of for the as citizens of heaven is that the Philippian church, they were, they were citizens of, of a town called Philippi. And Philippi was commonly known <coughs> to be like little Rome. Uh, you think of this maybe like little Italy? Um, uh, is there a little China? What, what is that place? It's not little Chinatown, thank you. 
<clears throat> so Philippi would have been like little Rome. It would have been similar to those. Uh, they wanted to be Romans so bad. They tried to speak the Roman land. They were a Roman province. But they really took this seriously more than any other city, more than any other town that uh, Paul writes to. And so what, what commentators would say is that when Paul is writing to the Philippian church, he's saying, hey, yeah, you're, you're citizens of Philippi, just like we're citizens of, of America, but it doesn't matter because ultimately you're a citizen of heaven, and that means more than your citizenship in any nation. And so as Paul makes his way through this, that, that's underscoring everything. This is the purpose for writing the book, that they would live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So with that in mind, we can kind of see um, what Paul is up to. So now turn, turn your attention to thinking about Epaphroditus. Now that we've got some context We've got some background on the author. We've got some background on the book, right? We're doing our interpretation well. Think about Epaphroditus. Um, Chris Shade knows this. One, one of my favorite sayings, and I don't remember. I just remember it was in conversation with him if it was something I came up with or something he has in his phone because he keeps quotes. Um, so you might ask him afterwards. Um, one of my favorite sayings, I've been using it for years, is that your reputation is the story of your character. Um, your reputation is the story of your character. What people know about you, think about you. Now, when I say that, it's also good for us to remember and to think about this truth. It's true that we live in a world, in a culture that values the art of character assassination, right? The world around us values that tremendously. Character assassination, where we share false narratives about how someone hurt us or how bad that someone is, just simply because we think it's true. We disagree with them. They disagree with us. Or they call this out for doing something stupid. People in our culture love to play the victim. And by playing the victim, they then assassinate other people's character unjustly because somehow they're so hurt by said person, usually because of words, oftentimes because of words. Regardless of that, though, in, even in light of that, the truth still remains that your reputation is the story of your character. And I would add to that that the character of finger pointers, as I point my finger, <laughs> better be in tip-top shape if they're going to walk around correcting someone else's behavior. Um, regardless, at the end of the day, in regard to character, um, one of the things that I constantly ask myself, uh, one of the things that I constantly ask others around me, is to evaluate each other. Now, we don't like evaluations, right? When you think about evaluations in a job, don't you get scared when evaluations come around? And then don't you typically get ticked off afterwards, right? Like, you didn't evaluate me properly. You didn't see my hard work. Like, good, right? Or, or like, a lot of us when we own businesses, like, we don't even do good at evaluating because we don't like to be evaluated ourselves because it makes us feel insecure. So we don't evaluate people around us. Or vice versa, we evaluate people around us oh so much to keep the light off of ourselves, right? Just, we're sick people. <laughs> we find millions of different ways to... Uh, 
get out of evaluation. Um, the reality is I think evaluation is really important. Now, we like to talk about self-evaluation. We like to talk about Holy Spirit evaluation, like, because that has nothing to do with you getting in my grill and telling me what's up. But, again, I would submit that Christians in America especially like to toss out the idea of accountability and the community that the scriptures talk about. I mean, the reality is that every epistle was written to a church that was led by pastors, elders, and deacons, had members in it, and they worked together on behalf of the gospel, right? Like that, I don't know how you read the Bible and arrive at anything else. Typically, the reason that you arrive at something else is because you don't like people getting in your grill. That's typically the issue. So, here we are. Paul is doing what? He's getting in the grill of these folks, and he's saying, hey, I want you to live this way, and here is an example and a model of what that looks like. Look at Epaphroditus. Let's look at the things we see about Epaphroditus. Ten quick, brief things. He's a brother, right? He's a brother. This is a term of endearment. Paul is saying that Epaphroditus is someone who can be trusted like a dearly beloved member of the family. Okay, He's not an extended member that you never see, that you don't get along with, that you talk trash about. He's not that kind of a, a member or, or a brother. He, he's the kind of, of brother who is close to you. He's been found to be faithful. So Epaphroditus is a brother. Second thing we see is that he is a hardworking partner. Okay, So Epaphroditus was no slacker. A youth catch Epaphroditus standing around yakking his lips with someone when there was work to be done. He didn't shirk his responsibilities and he took his responsibility to shoulder the, the, the load of ministry seriously. So this is Epaphroditus. He's a hard-working partner. I get the picture of Epaphroditus that if he got his job done that he knew he'd have been assigned to, he would be running to the boss man and saying, what's next? What do you need me to do? That would be the kind of man that Epaphroditus is. Third thing I see about Epaphroditus is he's a trusted fighter. You all know that fighter had to have made it in there somewhere for me anyways, but it was in the text, so it was a beautiful moment. He's a trusted fighter. Paul literally calls him a fellow soldier. Meaning what? And meaning that these two men, Paul and Epaphroditus, they had charged the gates of hell together, and Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Epaphroditus would never be for a fight. He knew that he could be trusted. Epaphroditus was a man that you would want with you in a dark alley. He's a man that you would want with you if you were charging the mountain against your... Epaphroditus simply did not tap out and he didn't wimp out. He was a man who was a trusted fighter. Fourth thing we see about Epaphroditus is that he was a faithful messenger. Epaphroditus had passed the message, whatever the message was, from the Philippians to the Apostle Paul who was in prison. He had passed that message and he had sold his life out for the sake of being a messenger of the gospel. Okay, This is his purpose in life. He didn't wimp out when his enemies came after him and his message didn't change to appeal to the crowd. Epaphroditus was a faithful messenger. See, you see this in, towards the tail end of verse 25. Paul Epaphroditus, the Philippians, ministered to my need. That's the phrase he uses. Which means that he came and he served the Apostle Paul in prison. I think about this for a minute. When we take trips, we, I mean, I, I don't want to 
sleep in a hotel, um, typically. I like things well. If I get to a hotel, work, I complain about it, don't I? Don't you? Yeah. Um, heading <laughs> to uh, a nice. You know, when I go to ministry trips at least now, I'll preach somewhere. I stayed in a hotel in an airport this last week and it was pretty small. I found myself complaining. To the point. Even now, um, convicting me. Um, the Apostle, Apostle Paul was in prison. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, so when Epaphroditus came to him, he probably brought him some food. Probably brought him some personal effects, maybe some supplies, maybe some clothing. These are things that uh, Rome did not provide for you. You have to come up with your own. That's bring in for you. Uh, more importantly, though, Epaphroditus provided companionship. He didn't come and drop all that stuff off the prison cell and be like, hey, I'm going over to Super 8. Um, our understanding is that he stayed there with him. Um, so, so the trip alone probably would have taken weeks to get there. Um, living arrangements once uh, Epaphroditus was there were definitely less than ideal um, since he was in prison. So this is a picture of a selfless servant in Epaphroditus. It's the kind of man that he is. Next thing we see is number six. He's a thoughtful, concerned friend. He's thoughtful and he's concerned. Paul says that Epaphroditus longed to see the Philippians. He was distressed or he was concerned because uh, the Philippians had heard that he was ill and most likely, they had not yet received a report of his good health. So in short, when you think about what Paul is saying here, is that Epaphroditus is less concerned about his own health and more concerned that the Philippians would be worried about him. That's his concern. He's like, I don't really care about my own health. What I'm actually worried about is that you would be worried about me. Therefore, I want to get there to assure you that I'm okay. It's that picture, you know, when for me, like when I realized, man, I'm running late from a late night meeting somewhere. I told my wife I was going to be home at nine, and it's now 11. I'm like, oh, holy smokes. Because she doesn't want to bother me. But I also know she's probably at home worried. I want to get there and see her at ease. It's that picture, right? Or any of you younger kids, you know, when you're supposed to be home at a certain time, when your parents tell you to be home at this time and you're running late. I mean, one thought is like, crap, I'm going to get my butt kicked. But the other thought, hopefully at some point, is, I want to set my parents' heart at ease, right? That's Epaphroditus, thoughtful and concerned. Seven, he's a mercy-marked believer. Out of verse 27, Paul says that though Epaphroditus nearly died, God had showered him with mercy. He'd healed him miraculously. He was marked by God's mercy. Not only was Epaphroditus marked by God's mercy, uh, but that very same mercy had affected the Apostle Paul deeply too. So you put your thinking caps on for a minute and think about this. When you, you, know, you put yourself in the Apostle Paul's shoes, can you imagine Imagine having a friend show up in your greatest time of need? I don't know what that greatest time of need is for you. Friend or relative dies. You get diagnosed with a deadly disease, right? Bottom falls out of the market. All your investments tank. You're going to lose the house. Town's empty and dry. Maybe your worst moment is that moment when you fell into sin last night in front of your computer screen again. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever your darkest moment is, imagine having 
a friend show up in that greatest time of need and then to face the human fear of possibly losing that friend to some kind of illness. And then, and then double down on that, in a stroke of miraculous mercy, your friend gets better right in front of your eyes. Like, heck of a week if you ask me. Right? Well, it's an emotional roller coaster. Paul was a recipient of that mercy. Same mercy that Epaphroditus received. They were, they were both mercy-marked believers. They knew that it was by the mercy of God that they were where they were. Eight, number eight, um, Epaphroditus was a joy-brainer. He was a joy-brainer. Paul says that he is eager, he's excited to send Epaphroditus home to the Philippian church. Why? Because he knows that Epaphroditus' return is going to fill everybody with joy. Right? Epaphroditus' return is going to kind of be like the family reunion. Um, I love family reunions. Well, my family reunions, they're the Italian ones, so they're loud. You know, they serve meatballs, and they got cannolis. An accent comes out of me even as I think about the food. Right? I love, I love the food, but I love the people. They're loud. And they're obnoxious. I can't even imagine what an entire would be like. And that would be It would be loud. <laughs> even when Italians they think inside their heads. Italians think out loud. Okay? So I know most of us here in this room, y'all think inside your heads, which is probably good. It's good. I love to pick on you for that too. But uh, I love family reunions. I love family reunions. But this, this kind of a family reunion would be different because this would be a family reunion with someone that you thought died. The Philippian church is possibly in a place where they, they are thinking that Epaphroditus is dead or dying, maybe. So, so this would be like a family reunion with all the best parts and pieces and then add to that the person you thought died shows up and walks through the door. Man. I mean, who have you lost in your life that if they showed up at the next family reunion, it would just, it wouldn't just make you happy. It would leave you on the ground weeping because you were so happy. Who is that for you? Right? But I think that's the sense. It points forward to what it's going to be like to see the resurrected Jesus in person. That's what it points forward to. You don't have to look far to find the gospel in the scriptures. It's there. Epaphroditus is a joy bringer. Nine. He's an honorable man. Right? He's an honorable man. Verse 29. Paul, Paul instructs the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus as a really godly man, to honor him as such with joy. He's literally saying that the Philippians should regard Epaphroditus as a man to be honored. You, know, you think of a judge. Yes, your honor. It's that respect that Epaphroditus deserves. And sadly, we live in a country where it, it is a popular, really popular, um, to disrespect those who have been placed in authority and governance, especially in the church. Uh, I've felt that often. Rather than being asked, what did you mean by that? I get words put in my mouth instead. That's disrespectful. I felt that. That's not just me. And you look in the culture around us, this is popular. I pull up Facebook feeds. We do this all day long. Our president this, that presidential candidate that, blah, 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 blah. It's popular. 
And this is a way that the culture has infected the church, where the church has failed to be a bright and shining light, living lives that are honorable of the gospel, right? Um, this is, I think this is places at least where I'm convicted. Tenth thing that we see about Epaphroditus, I know I'm running out of time, but Nelson did say I could go longer today, so. <laughs> yep. Tenth thing we see about Epaphroditus is that he was a death-defying laborer. Um, that's, that's the way I worded it. Uh, in the final verse, verse 30 of our text, the Apostle Paul gives the Philippians one last massive uh, character description. What does he say? It says that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In other words, what did Epaphroditus do? He uh, laid his life on the line for the sake of the gospel. He didn't he didn't merely give lip service um, to this concept of suffering and dying for the king. I mean, we've seen songs about suffering and dying for Jesus, kind of, you know. We've seen them, but really, like, I don't know. Is any of us really suffering? Like, you can't meet in church on Sunday mornings. That's pretty small compared to the suffering of believers across the world, if, if you ask me. I mean, I, I most of you know me. I've got this real weird thinking that I think is I say sick and weird just to catch your attention. I think it's biblical. I mean, when, when you when you look, see, I got your attention. <laughs> words. You use words to get attention. Why do you want to drive home point? When you, when you read the scriptures, you read about the church. You guys have heard me. Most of you have heard me rant and rave about this. When you read about the early church, what do you read? You read about persecution. You read about a persecuted church. What do you also read about? You read about a church that is thriving and growing and multiplying like crazy. Why? Well, I can tell you this. It wasn't because they had to wear face masks. It wasn't because they had the Democratic Party and the Republican Party at each other's throats. Like, those are small potatoes. Really small potatoes. These people were getting lit up like torches on the sides of the streets, okay? That was persecution. We're not being persecuted, folks. All right? That's tough, but it's not persecution yet. Will we get there someday? Probably. I don't think it's too hard to look in the scriptures and not see anything any different. If you see something different, I'd just like to, I'd like to see it. You could show me in the Bible. That'd be great. So the reason I say I'm a little bit sick is I oftentimes just pray, God, would you just, would you just bring some persecution already for us? Because it would cleanse us. It would make us holy. And I believe the church, here's what would happen. People who are just pretend Christians, they bail. They're going to die for the gospel, right? People who are real Christians, they get their nose in their Bibles and start actually praying because their lives depend on it. Those are days that I kind of long for. I don't want that suffering, but I want the product of the suffering that I see in Scripture. Because here in America, I believe we're a spoiled, rotten brats. That's what I believe as a church. We don't like preachers that say hard things. We like preachers that say soft things, tickle our little ears. Right? So I'll move on. Epaphroditus was a death-defying laborer. He was ready to uh, die for his king. And he actually lived it out in his daily life, and there was no questioning that Epaphroditus was this kind of a man. Honestly, I think, as I, I think the reason I probably got, get so passionate went off script there in that last point is I, it was convicting for me um, to flesh that point out and pray through it. I mean, you all know I deal with fear. So what does that cause for me? When I say something that ticks you off or gets on your nerves, I can easily then revert back to, okay, how do I say that differently so I don't offend? And uh, 
Some of that is appropriate because we want the gospel to be winsome, but some of that's just an absolute sick sin inside of me because I'm more afraid of what man can do to me or say about me than I am of the Lord himself. You know? I'm afraid of people who have power to either make or break my job so we can plant a church, and so I shut my trap because I'm fearful. So what am I doing? I'm confessing my sin to you openly. Why? Because I need to lead by example. That's my job as an elder pastor. It's no fun. I'll tell you that. Summarize. Epaphroditus was a brother. He was a hardworking partner, a trusted fighter, a faithful messenger, a selfless servant, a thoughtful, concerned friend, a mercy-marked believer, a joy-brainer, an honorable man of God, a death-defying laborer in the ministry of the gospel. Here's the thing. No one would ever dare to accuse Epaphroditus of being self-centered or prideful or a complainer or an arguer or, 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 a, or a person who disagrees with everyone or a person who is divisive. And if anybody did, I don't think their accusation would stand up very long. I don't think there was really anyone alive at the time who would probably dare to try to play the victim, um, some kind of character assassination attempt with Epaphroditus. I don't think that, uh, um, I just don't think you'd see that. And if you, again, I don't think the action would, I don't think it would fly. Epaphroditus uh, certainly was a man who exemplified what it means to put on the mind of Christ, to work out your own salvation in Christ, to stand firm in the joy of Christ. Here's what Epaphroditus was, to draw this back to the point and the purpose of the book. He was a man who lived his life in a manner that was worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the citizen of heaven. That being said, that's the explanation of the text. I could leave us there, we could pray, we could go home, right? You understand the text, and why? If I'd be really unfaithful, I didn't apply it. Right? Now, I could apply it really, really generally. I'll give you some light, fluffy little ideas, right? Could do that. Go be like Epaphroditus, right? We're done. Go home. Could do that. Go work on yourself. Um, could do that. Honestly, that's easier. I'd rather do that, but here's where we're going to head. As I thought, as I prayed about applying this message to our modern context in America in 2020, why, why do I do that? It makes all, most of you feel really uncomfortable whenever I say these things. I know, because you don't know where I'm going. Who's he going to rip on? Who's he going to talk about? He's going to try to point his finger at me? I have a responsibility to do so. I'm calling from the Lord to do so, too. So, as I think about applying this message to our modern context in America 2020, because we're not living in 1776, you know, I love my guns. I'm about as patriotic as I come, and I got American flags in my garage and on my phone. And um, but at the end of the day, I have to apply this to where we all live, right? I have to apply this to the culture we're living in. I have to admit, I, I do have some despair. I do have some fear that I deal with when I think about the realization that I've said many times: there aren't many people in the Western Church, the American Church, who really can stop preacher who stands up and preaches against the massive tides of what I would call a national religion. Now, if you want to know what that phrase means, why don't you and I talk later? Because I'm not going to spend time trying to unpack it. It should, in my mind, just make sense what that means. But if it doesn't make sense to you, trust me, I'm not talking down to you. I'm saying if it doesn't, legitimately, I'd like to talk to you. I'd, I'd like to tell you what I mean by that. But most countries, words that are today, I think would rather have a preacher who tones it down a little. Rather have a preacher who um, doesn't engage the culture war around us, unless, of course, 
engage the culture war if you agree with me and if you have the same proof texts out of context usually, which drives me batty because I love the word. Love, love God's word. Taking text out of context drives me bonkers. Well, unless we agree on whatever cultural war we're fighting and have the same proof text, then, then we get along. Um, here's the thing that this doesn't do. It certainly doesn't earn brownie points with people. It doesn't earn brownie points with people when a preacher makes people feel uncomfortable. Because the Holy Spirit would never do that. Agreed? He would never make you feel uncomfortable. Because yeah, he's our comforter. That's biblical. Proof texting. Are you following me? Like I, uh, Good. Because what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts you and makes you feel really flippant uncomfortable. So I love the old phrase that, uh, I love the old phrase that a preacher's job is to uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I think it'd make a good tattoo. I've got room for it. So... <laughs> So the question, now that I've, really, all I've, really all I've tried to do here, what have I tried to do? What do you think I've been trying to do? Just provoking you, right? I'm just poking. Why? Because it wakes you up, right? When you get poked, you get prodded, it wakes you up. What does that do? Hopefully the Holy Spirit then uses that to open places of your heart that you need to receive the application of the text. Because really none of that was the application of the text. That was just me poking and, poking and prodding. So question really before us is, can the same thing be said of us that was said of Epaphroditus? That's, that's the application. Can the same thing be said of you that Paul said of Epaphroditus? Can the same thing be said of the vast American church that can be said of Epaphroditus? Yeah, I'll wind it all together. I'd like to know. I have answers in my head sometimes. Would the Apostle Paul be comfortable using Christians in the American church as examples of people who live lives that are worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven? Are we known for our devotion to putting on the mind of Christ? Are we known for being people who work out our own salvation in Christ? Are we known for being people who stand firm in the joy of Christ? Are there, are there any slivers inside of us? of self-centeredness or pride or complaining or arguing or disagreeing or division among us? Do we live like blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we live that way? Are we hardworking partners in the gospel or are we more like spectators in a stadium or a cruise ship? That's, I love that question. I'm going to ask it again. Are we hardworking partners in the gospel or are we more like spectators in a stadium or a cruise ship? Would people affirm that we are trusted fighters? Would anybody want to walk into a dark alley with you for the sake of the gospel? Are we faithful messengers? Are we selfless servants? Are we thoughtful, concerned friends? Are, we, are our lives marked by the mercy of God? Are we joy bringers? Are we crowd pleasers? Are we honorable men and women of God? Like, would we risk our lives for the sake of the gospel? Now, that's evaluation. And I believe it's called Holy Spirit-led evaluation. One, because the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible. Two, your preacher's preaching it to you. And there is a sense in which God does ordain preachers 
to be led by the Holy Spirit to preach things. Three, all those questions can apply to all of us, right? Like some of those we're probably okay in and others we're probably not. And here's where the Holy Spirit works. I'm just going to be the faithful guy who's going to ask the questions and say it. It's on you to hear from the Holy Spirit and walk it out. Like you can't walk out of here and blame the preacher for not saying it right to you, right? You have to own your growth and your spiritual walk. So that's where the partnership of the community takes place between pastor, elder, and flock. Pastors and elders and flock. So those questions are there to evaluate. When I evaluate myself with this list of questions, I am rightly humiliated by my own shortcomings. By my own conversations, one would easily believe that I am far more versed and concerned about a plethora of issues ranging from politics to government overreach to my so-called, so-called God-given national freedoms, like my right to carry a firearm. Not to mention, I have an utter distaste, and most of you know this, for anything that has to do with wearing face masks, so I'll just drop that out there. I don't care that it's public. I don't like wearing face masks. Unless I'm on my bike doing 85 miles an hour down the highway, I'm trying to keep bugs out of my teeth, okay? Don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'll wear the mask. I don't like it is what I'm saying. I don't like it. And y'all have heard me complain about it enough. The other thing that you hear me rant and rave about, and I talk about it, and I think it's good to talk about, um, but I also have to be careful um, as I do, um, I get really uptight about any kind of brand of, of Christianity that, that speaks better patriotic language than gospel language because the two aren't the same. And for some reason, we in America have a really hard time figuring out what that looks like. And, and I'll be honest with you, the reason is because the church for a long time in America has preached a patriotic message and failed to preach a gospel message. Um, I believe that wholeheartedly. So, um, not that we shouldn't be patriotic, once again. I know, I confuse you. I have people say, you really confuse every living heck out of me. You tell me I shouldn't be patriotic, I should be more gospel. No, I'm not telling you you shouldn't be. I'm just telling you, you should be more gospel-centered than you should be patriotic-centered. That's all. And that's what I don't see in the church today, the modern church. And oftentimes I don't see it in myself. So these shortcomings of mine are probably... um, not a big surprise to you. I mean, most of you know me. We're, we're living in an unprecedented year, right? The culture right now is steeped, steeped with self-centeredness, steeped with pride, complaining, arguing, disagreements, division. You see this all over the place, not to mention the fact that just because I'm a preacher doesn't mean I don't wrestle with sin. Like, well, people like get really surprised when I do sin. They're like, how flipping dare you? Oh, gosh. You ought to get me off your pedestal. I probably ought to be what you ought to do. So, not to mention the culture, but my own sin. Uh, Again, these are not fun things to confess, I think, for most people. Hopefully, hopefully as I confess these things, I'm not alone. Hopefully some of you are like, yeah, I can can identify with some of that. I'm there too. Uh, Hopefully the Spirit shows you where you have failed. That's what sin means. Failed to hit the mark doesn't make you a failure, right? To call someone a failure is to speak a language of shame. That's what Satan would speak to you. Language of guilt is you're rightly guilty of failing the commands of Scripture. So that's, 
hard to hear, hard to admit. We want to cover up that sin, blame that sin, pretend like it didn't happen. So what do you do? What do you do in light of all these shortcomings? And here's my only answer. I hope you all know that this is where we would land because this is where we land every week. Job of a preacher is to preach the gospel. What are the high points of the gospel? God created you to be this way. Fall. Sin happened. You're not this way. This picture of Aphrodite is a pretty perfect picture. That's the way God created all of us men and women to be, was to look that way. But we don't because we're sinful and we're broken. And that's where I left off. You failed. So did I. Right? You heard that clearly, right? You felt the guilt clearly. And that's... What's the job of preachers to preach the gospel through the text, not just preach the text? So, where do you go after this is how you were created to be? And the world fell into sin because of Adam and Eve. And by the way, you're part of that. You failed too. Where do you go after that? Do you stay there? The next place you go in the gospel is you go to redemption. Redemption, right? God sent his son. You don't have really good news unless you have bad news. All I've done is work through the bad news, showed you the way that you should be, showed you how you're not, and I want to show you Jesus. Because now Jesus becomes the fresh drink of water that every one of us with our worship disorders needs. Just like the woman at the well, the name of our church, in a place where we can get a tall drink of fresh water, right? And that's Jesus. That's my answer to that question. What do you do in light of all the failures, all the shortcomings? My answer is that we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus not only as our example, we also look to Jesus as our substitute when we sin. See, Jesus is our model for holy living for sure. But he's also our substitute for when we get it wrong. And half of the modern church today at least has rejected the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus paid the price, he's our substitute, and that substitution covers our sins and wipes out our sin. Half the church, if not more, has cast that away because people today cannot handle a message that says that God killed his son on behalf of rotten people so that we could become good people. At the end of the day, what I'm saying is that Jesus is a better Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a great picture. But you walk out of here like, man, there's 10 things about Epaphroditus that I am not. You're going to live in the pride of despair. Or if you walk out of here and you go, you know what, out of those 10 things that Epaphroditus was, man, I'm knocking eight of them out of the park. You're going to live in the pride of arrogance. And that's not the gospel. That's not Jesus. So I want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus is the brother who will never leave you or forsake you. Okay? Jesus, by the power of his spirit, will work hard to produce his character in and through you. And, and let me ask this question. Who else would you want fighting for you than the lion of the tribe of Judah in a dark alley anyways? Jesus was and is the most trustworthy messenger of the good news who ever lived. 
See, as far as uh, being a faithful servant is concerned, what did Jesus do? Then he washed the feet of even those who would abandon and forsake him and leave him on the cross. If you read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John's gospel, what will you find there? You will, you will find the most thoughtful and concerned friend that you've ever met as he prays for you. If you're in need of mercy, then Jesus is the most merciful person who ever lived. He withholds from you what you deserve. That's mercy. And didn't, didn't Jesus live? I mean, you think about it. Didn't Jesus live with, with even more joy, uh, even in the final hours of his life before death, than most of us seemingly wealthy American Christians live with on an average day? Didn't he? And if, if I need joy in my life, that's who I need to look to is Jesus as he goes to the cross for the joy that was before him. If you're constantly living under the guilt and the shame of your shortcomings, then this is really good news to know that when the Father looks upon you in Christ Jesus, as you trust in Christ, the Father looks on you as a good, kind, and loving Father, and He says that you are perfect, you're lovable, and you're desired. I, if you could just get those three identity pieces into your mind and your heart, I can't even be I can't even express how much that sets a heart free sets a person free you are you are loved you are perfect and you're desired God looks at you and says I want you and you're mine and I love you as far as being a death-defying labor in the ministry of the gospel who who else could we look to other than Jesus as he gives his life horrifically and willingly at the cross for his enemies, right? In all of this, it really is, as I always say, when you, when you find yourself falling short of the perfect commands of the Scriptures, then, then I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to, to look to Jesus and find rest and find hope at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb as you hang on to the hope of heaven. It's my favorite saying. I want to work into a sermon every week. Because in it is contained all the points of the gospel. Because there in the shadow of the cross, in the doorway of that empty tomb, as you cling to the promise of heaven, what do you find? You find a better Epaphroditus in the person and the work of Jesus. That's where I want to leave you. Amen? Father, thank you. For your word, thank you for this word. Pray, Father, that you would take it now and use it in our hearts and cause transformation in our lives. Help us to live lives that uh, honor you, glorify you. We trust your spirit to do that work over the next few moments. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.